This episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast is brought to you by On Point Pomade. Keep your beard and hair looking on point with their line of pomades and beard oils over at onpointpomade.com. Use our code BSP15 at checkout and get 15% off your total purchase order. So thanks again to On Point Pomade for sponsoring our show. This episode is also sponsored by the Bean Bastard Coffee. Head over to thebeanbastard.com and pick up any one of their delicious hand-roasted coffees. Coffee lovers will also enjoy their hand-cut and handmade espresso candles and soaps as well. If you're in the Buffalo, New York area, head to their store located at 448 Elmwood Avenue. And thanks again to the Bean Bastard for supporting this show. Brutally Speaking Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rockabilia.com. With over 500,000 officially licensed items in their online store, you're guaranteed to find something you need. Use our code BREW and get 10% off your total order. Now on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. We are inching our way closer to episode 300. This is episode 297 with Nathan Mowry of Kind Punk Films. Um, Nathan and I basically got introduced to each other uh, by me going and being on Scott Bowling's show. Uh, Good company with bowling down in Atlanta, Georgia. You know the whole spiel everyone always says. It's funny. I don't know why everyone has to say Scott Bowling down in Atlanta, Georgia. Like, it's just almost like this this thing, these connected words. Like, you have to say Atlanta, Georgia when you say Scott Bowling. Um, all that aside, this was done when I tagged along with my friend Alfonso of the band Heartsick. Uh, he was being a guest on Good Company, and I asked if I could tag along and did just because I wanted to have the experience of going to Scott's house and having more fun than being like, oh, I can't really, like, have much to drink because I'm about to be interviewed and I don't want to be like slurry and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, it was fun just to kind of go and, and see basically all the friends I made from my one interview on Scott's show. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to link up with Nathan and finally do this conversation. We have actually been trying to get it done for, I think pretty much exactly since I did that conversation with Scott. So it's been about a year, I think at this point, since we've been trying to link up and do the whole talking to each other gimmick. And, uh, it was one of those where it was just really fun. Like I was kind of worried that he would be a little, uh, not fatigued or burned out from having just basically worked and shot a couple episodes for Scott, but just kind of Uh, Maybe the environment would have been a little bit distracting because there's, you know, kind of almost like a rap party esque kind of vibe where everyone's like, okay, like we're done. That was a lot of fun. Let's have a couple beers. Let's all hang out. Let's kind of talk. And I was kind of worried that maybe it would be a bit distracting for, for Nathan or myself to kind of really dig in and have a good conversation. But that was actually not really the case. And I found it to be really engaging. And I'm really glad that, you know, Nathan 
took the time uh, to sit with me for about an hour and, and chat. Um, I'm going to preface and say this is the first in-person interview I've done in almost a year and a half at this point. And I don't know what happened, but at some point, one of my mic cables got hit and it messed up my audio a little bit. It kind of makes me sound like I'm talking into a mic that's across the room a little bit. You can still hear what I'm saying. You can hear Nathan perfectly fine. Um, but I'm kind of glad that like it's almost fitting that something happened with my first in-person interview in over, you know, a year or so. So, uh, apologies on that. Um, (laughs) but I'm not going to apologize, uh, for the beer that I had for this episode. It was the 311 beer for the beautiful disaster, uh, grassroots Imperial IPA. Uh, when I showed up to the house, Scott, uh, I was looking for a beer or whatever. And Scott's like, Hey, have one of these 311 beers. And, uh, I know that he had gotten a lot of the beers had kind of told me about them. Uh, so I was very much looking forward to trying them. I always love when bands do beers because it's just interesting to see how they try to put a flavor profile to either a classic record, a song, the band, whatever. So with this one, it's basically the, uh, the, you know, it basically has the grassroots album cover and it's a, uh, I mean, it's definitely an IPA, um, that was the one thing I do remember about it. Uh, I wasn't able to pour it into a glass. I just drank it straight from the bo- uh, from the can, I should say. Um, I do remember there being a bit of like a tart kind of orangey flavor to it. Um, I think when I had read the can, I have a photo of it on my phone, um, that basically it had kumquats, I believe, in it. And I remember it kind of having, like I said, just a really interesting citrusy tart kind of like orangey kind of flavor, but I guess that would probably be the kumquat. Uh, and this thing's no joke either. It comes in <laughs> at 11.3%. I think when I was drinking that, I had that, a can of White Claw, and a Miller Lite going all at one time. But uh, you know what? When you're when you're a guest in the South, uh, you get hooked up with that Southern hospitality. Uh, so without further ado, from Scott Bowling's basement, this is my conversation with Nathan Mowry. I'll see you on the other side of it. Go. Gonna crack the white cloth. Get ready. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Scott Bowling's mansion basement, uh, aka Hard Rock Cafe Light, aka Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're gonna say gimmick a lot in this. Oh yeah. Uh, sitting here with Nathan uh, Mowry of Kind Punk Film, of Good Company with Bowling, of. What else? What else is there? What other monikers do you have? What other stage names? What other shoot names do you have? Oh man, dude, I have a lot. So I, uh, I you know, I'm the ki- I'm the kind punk. Some would say it's the name of my company. Do a lot of film production, work in uh, rock and roll and pro wrestling, and do a lot of stuff with uh, AEW and my own promotion, Southern Honor Wrestling, with two of my buddies and uh, oodles of other things. Lots of music videos, etc., and doing things like uh, Good Company. So. So that's how you came onto my radar, and I'm sure for those that maybe will be listening to this, that's probably how most people would know you, or from the CMFT stuff that you've been doing, or with the cherry bombs, as you said. But, like, let's go all the way back. What got you into doing stunts and film? I would assume we're roughly the same age, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be either Jackass, Big Brother, or CKY. Absolutely. It was a combination (laughs) of all those things. So, I mean, I I grew up in, like... uh, 
like, I was born in 91, at the end of 91, so that would kind of put me at the target demographic for the jackass generation of things. So when I grew up just always loving uh, filmmaking and just getting a camera, my mom's VHS camera, just going outside, goofing off with my friends. And, of course, that's when the, the you know Big Brother and CKY and Jackass would come out, and then I'd start watching that, and I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I don't really have to put a lot of thought into it. I should just go get my camera and go... Like, I live next door to, like, a sawmill, so I'd go next door there, and I, me and my brothers and friends would just be jumping off stuff, and that's when I discovered, like, pro wrestling, and uh, I would be on YouTube watching, like, CZW and stuff like that. So death matches. Brothers, yeah, death matches. A huge death match, Mark. So we'd be out and just... Me and my brothers would just be smashing each other with light tubes and lighting stuff on fire, and it was... That was kind of, like, how I got into filmmaking was... Uh, through filming jackass stunts or recreating, pretending like we were Signic Mondo back in the day. You know? So that was kind of that was what I did as a teenager, and that was my early start into pro wrestling. Before I realized that, hey, I could probably make money out of this. And you know, that's, wait, 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 I'm sorry. What is that word you just said? What was it? Money. money. You can make money doing this. You, I, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Okay. So I, for some reason, I've been able to pay my bills the past ten years doing doing filmmaking, which has been ridiculous. Would have you believe that that is not the case? I I know it's kind of nuts. It feels like I'm getting away with murder. There's no reason <laughs> I should be able to do this. So it's pretty pretty ridiculous. So I'm very very thankful and fortunate to, you know, I, I say like when I was a kid, all I did was watch wrestling and make videos and goof off with my friends, and I still do that. Now I, for some reason, someone gives me a check to do it. So it's kind of rad. Like I'm <laughs> super stoked. Even going back a little bit before that, like, so something that I find kind of interesting in, you know, kind of growing up in the same thing, like where it's like, you know, watching a lot of band documentaries, watching a lot of the CKYs, you know, especially being from the East Coast myself and not that far from Philly, um, or more to the point, Westchester. Um, what were some of your inspirations film-wise? Because I think, so it's something that I've made a, a, a concerted thing to talk about lately with people who are into film is like, you know, I think Bam Margera, for as much as we all shit on him now for a lot of the public meltdowns he's having, he's really responsible for a lot of the quick jump edits we see in modern comedy now, like the Adult Swim kind of stuff, like the Eric Andres and so forth. Absolutely. Like he with CKY was one of the first to be like, here's a here's a quick like rapid fire joke, boom! Now we're cut seating to something mm -hmm. like that. Now we're gonna loop a section like the. <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, like the, the, those things. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize how much his editing style really informed a lot of modern, like, filmmaking, like, in that kind of space. Dude, no, absolutely. That's the one thing about, like, uh, that I feel like bam margera and just cky and that era of filmmaking was so influential, especially with people like me. It was just like, like, I think that's what made me want to be a filmmaker because it was like I was a big fan of like Spike Jones and I loved his music videos and stuff. And I didn't realize that Spike Jones had a hand in like creating Jackass and was like a producer for it. And there was something about just friends going out, just being friends and just documenting like them goofing off and formatting it in a way that would, you know, be relatable to people. Because, you know, guys for throughout history have done dumb shit forever, you know, just jumping <laughs> off stuff. But they were the ones that were smart enough to film it and make it a TV show. And uh, and there's just, like, a lot of stuff, like, th with that style with CKY and Jackass that uh, influenced me. And it's weird because, like, uh, when I – there was, like, a day I realized, like, oh, I didn't realize that Spike Jones was involved. And when I realized that Spike Jones was involved, like, he did the, like, BC Boy Sabotage video and a bunch of cool music videos. And I always loved, like, when people were able to uh, – mix both something that's like 
not overly polished, but has a very cool raw feeling to it. And I feel like Spike Jones does that really well. And I feel like people, or at least me and the audience that I tried to do is like, there is a, uh, like, it's hard to, it's harder for me to connect to something like Transformers because it's overly polished and it's, it doesn't feel real. But there's something about Jackass that feels very authentic and very much, oh, these are just real friends doing like stuff that makes them laugh and you can feel that friendship and connection in that and as goofy as it is there is like a great artistry to that and i feel like that was something that was like okay there is a very unique way of doing art and filmmaking like it doesn't have to be transformers and it can be it can look more like jackass and still be just as good you know i think i know it sounds ridiculous i, was say, I think that's such an interesting <laughs> barometer of like jackass and transformers I know, that, that's just what come to my head i could have probably used better examples but that's just what i was thinking so i mean the thing that's interesting though is like you because i think by admission you know i think i'm about five or six years older than you. So like, it's not much in the, like in the reality of things, but it is interesting when you kind of think about what was coming out. Cause like, you know, Jack, like Jackass is going to probably be a common theme. And so mm. will be early wrestling. But like, what's interesting to me is like, I did the same thing. I filmed videos and short skits and things like that with mm. my friends. We played around with black and white color, shitty crude effects and so forth mm. and, and stunts. And, the thing that kind of is interesting to me, like, as I got into films of different kinds is my my go-to barometer at the top isn't going to be a Michael Bay film, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's one of those things where when I look back at wrestling even, you know, a lot of the wrestling I saw growing up was still very grandiose and, and big in production, mm-hmm. and I look back at it now, I look back at those, like, 80s era WWF and yeah. even some of the WCW, the AWAs and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh my God, this shit looks so fucking hokey. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the carryover theme between both is if you sell it and you believe in it, the shittiness or the rawness of what you're doing goes away because you're selling something and you, you believe in it so much that other people do. Yeah. What was one of the things for you that you first saw that captured your imagination to be like, I really want to do and make and tell stories of some kind, whether it be skits that we make up with friends or whatever. What was kind of the impetus for that for you? Man, it was it was a mix of stuff. I think like uh, like obviously like Jackass was like a big influence for me. Like as as goofy as that is to cite that as like a sort of of inspiration on how to approach art or how to approach life in a weird way. As goofy as it is, that was something I always cite. But just uh, like pro wrestling and just like I loved watching just like you know indie movies or just things that felt more tangible. Like I think that's why I like Spike Jones and even like with the movies that he did, it just felt like you know what, I can do this. If, if you're creative enough and you can just have, like, there's just some kind of heart behind it that's just way different than having a very well-polished kind of, you know, billion-dollar movie or whatever. And that's, and for me, I was just like, well, I remember being like an 18-year-old kid and being like, you know what, if Spike Jones could, like, film Jackass and then he can film these music videos and he can go on to direct, like, these cool movies that have cool practical effects, then, like, it just made the idea of being a filmmaker, like, felt tangible to me and so in a weird way i would say spike jones is who really influenced me to uh kind of go after that because he did cool like i don't know if you ever saw the yeah right skateboard movie or whatever like stuff like that it's, isn't that where the uh sorry to cut you off isn't that where um uh, loomis isn't that where he did the the music for their video or something like that where they were on fire and it's like 
that they, they use that video or that snippet I know of that talk- video? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Isn't I that forget- in that or no? I don't know, but I know that was a Spike Jones thing. Okay, I forgot yeah. the name of the band. I want to say it was like Wax or something, something like, like that. that yeah, yeah. yeah, but that was a cool video because that video is literally just 30 seconds in yeah. real time, but it was like it two was and a half super minutes. Super slowed of- down guy just running on fire, yeah. and then it. He just runs around a corner and then it pans and like there's a little kid sitting in the back seat. Simple music video, but just super memorable. And I was like, that was more memorable than these like super polished like regurgitated versions of whatever the cool thing is. And I I like uh, I worked with uh, Diamond Dallas Page for like nine years. And one thing that he always told me is like you can either be better than, less than, or different than. Always go the path less traveled. And I think if you carve your own niche and you find a creative way of doing things, I think that registers more with people than just trying to do you know chase after whatever the trend currently is. And if well, that makes sense. I think the interesting thing about that though is like you more so than I really came up in a time where. The DIY space, like, I mean, obviously there was the, the punk boom of, like, the 70s and so forth of, like, you know, you just make music because you're you're passionate about it, and that caught on with bands, you know, like the Sex Pistols and so forth, where they had a message and something they were really passionate about, but I feel like that era of, like, your Spike Joneses, your, your I would even say even WWE, like, yeah. they totally were just more like, fuck it, like, let's just do crazy different shit, like, I mean... There's no way back in the day you would have been able to have someone like a character like Stone Cold or The Rock who who are literally berating fans and other people mm. and swearing at them and, and saying kind of horrible things to each other, yeah. like in a non PG version. But like I think that era was just really interesting as a whole between just media as a as a, mm. as a whole, where you are seeing so many people push boundaries and envelopes basically because of. I don't know if it's just the freedom of the era of just being like, oh, we, something needs to change. Yeah. And it's just happening. Yeah, and I think that was just, yeah, that was kind of just that time period. I mean, like, the most popular shows on TV for me growing up was just like, yeah, it was like WWE and it was like South Park and things like that. Like, your Jerry Springers and a lot of shock TV was very yeah. popular at that time and just almost this countercultural approach on how to, like, do life and how to make... Uh, make art and stuff and that's that's what i was influenced by and i've always been someone that wants to uh question the way things people go about doing stuff and i always find like if i if i go out and i kind of do things like in my own way or do it a creative way or just do something slightly different even if it's not technically or by the book like the right way of doing it people tend to connect with it better and that's kind of always been the thing that i try to do is like just be a little different or be a little bit more I guess creative or stuff but yeah growing up in that kind of uh, like I was very influenced by the whole DIY movement of the you know punk culture and whatnot and that's that's always been a big influence of mine and something I've always tried to uh, you know keep that kind of spirit in what I want to do and, and chase after you know speaking a little bit of geographically about you know you've always lived here in, in Georgia Atlanta probably right I, I grew up in like two hours north up in Tennessee, like outside okay. of Chattanooga. Okay. And so I lived there for like my whole life up until I was 19. And okay. now I'm 29 now. So the past 10 years I've been here in Atlanta in the area. Because I was going to say, like, my question would have been initially then did kind of like that early. And it wasn't an underground, it was definitely an, actually an underground scene that then became a mainstream scene. But I was going to say, like, you know, like you look at a band like The Chariot or like some of the bands, or Seven Dust, and mm-hmm. a lot of the bands that came from here, 
do you see kind of a, a fledgling scene that's starting off very grassroots DIY and then it's just taking making people note take notice of what they're doing are you kind of taking influence from that and maybe even being like and I don't want to say acceptability is is necessarily the word but like almost kind of excuse me a like a blueprint kind of of like oh here's these people forging their own path they're doing something completely different and it's allowing it's giving me the motivation to want to do something in this scene because it seems like people are supporting it dude absolutely i especially when it comes to a band like the chariot i mean i have multiple chariot tattoos on me i'm a huge it was a, it was a cheap cheap plug oh absolutely it was an easy segue <laughs> it was an easy talk, yeah, yeah easy, easy you get me talking about the chariot bro like i love the chariot like my favorite band of all time so it, they were definitely someone who influenced me because like at first like when i was listening to like their old like albums and, stuff, and all that stuff yeah like at first i didn't get it and then i saw them live and when i saw them live i was like I get it. Like that's just they kind of threw the structure out the window what you would expect out of a like a hardcore show or a punk show or whatever and the first time I saw them was in Chattanooga and they came out to the song uh, Teach or whatever. That was the first thing they played, but they didn't even play the first half of the song. They just started off at the breakdown <laughs> and like I was just like this is the coolest shit ever. And every and he's like this stage is your stage. This microphone is your microphone. Be free. And I was like, man, that's the kind of feeling that I absolutely love. And I love just creating art that makes people feel f free and feel rebellious. And I think everybody needs a healthy level of rebellion. And I think the chariot was something for me that made me kind of like realize that and understand how to do that in like almost a healthy way of, of uh, being one being part of like punk culture but also still being true to being southern in the same kind of ethics you're brought up in with being southern and and uh just being creative in that sense and so the chariot was a huge influence on me and i think for anybody that's never seen the chariot just google them like look them up on youtube and you'll watch some of the craziest live shit ever it's this it's absolutely unbelievable so it's hard not to like go to a chariot show and not be inspired creatively in some way it was really weird. I saw one of the the Chariot's farewell tour. They played in uh, this venue called the Pyramid Scheme. It's like a 420 cap room. Less than, I'll say, eight months later, fucking Josh comes through a 68 opening mm -hmm. for, I think, for Chiodos uh, on their reunion tour. And it was so weird to see the stark contrast of the show. So, Chariot, mm. I swear, like, note one... Till the end of the set, pandemonium. Absolutely, just, yeah. I, I don't even. Chaos. I can't even call it controlled chaos because it's not. It just straight up regular old yep. chaos. Yep. <laughs> yeah, old fashioned chaos. And then '68, I feel like definitely borrows a lot from that same punk ethos, mm -hmm. that DIY punk ethos that Josh has always had. Yeah. But every time I've ever seen the cherry, or I mean, sorry, every time I've ever seen '68. I feel like people don't get it. They don't let loose the same way. Not the yeah. same way, not in the same manner that Josh and now I think, uh, it's not Michael anymore, I forget who the drummer's mm -hmm. name is, but like, I feel like they try to create that same space that the Chariot had allowed fans to have. Yeah. But I don't think people know how to interact with 68. And it's really a bummer. Yeah. It's no, really I, a bummer. I agree. It's just like, uh, and I love 68. I think same. 68's dope. Like, uh, But there was just something about the Chariot that was just, it was... A more aggressive and just like it was rowdy. yeah it was completely cathartic and it was just a rowdy band like i went to their very final show in douglasville the seven oh, video they had like a rope swing like people <laughs> were just like legit swinging and i was telling the story earlier but we did it like 
it there was a documentary that's on YouTube uh yeah called forget not yep. like my old roommate Derek Searsay did the documentary okay and uh it's beautifully shot by the way yeah it's incredible he's he's a very talented dude and like I went to the very last show and uh, me and my brother and there was like a bunch of other camera guys there just filming everything and I was just so ecstatic about being at the Terry's final show that I would like film, hand the camera to my brother, hit a couple stage dives to get rowdy and come back film some more because I was just, I really wanted to experience it. But it was such a rowdy show that at one point some like two dudes climbed up on like the lighting rig and just jumped off this huge thing into the crowd and we had like five, six camera guys. No one even saw it. That's how crazy the show was and my brother happened to catch it and it was pretty nuts but it was just the wildest show to this day that i've ever seen and there's no band that's been able to kind of fill that that kind of void for me i feel like that's an interesting segue though right there you know you're talking about how you as someone who's supposed to be capturing footage to make people feel like they're a part of this experience that they weren't there for and i feel like in what you've done with you know the the uh, i'm too old for this shit and stuff like that like you know, there's a scene where you are stage diving during one of the set. Yeah. And it's one of those, like, you know, you made a, I think you made a post about it even where you were like, I really, I just got caught up and I wanted to fucking go be a part of this show that yeah. I was literally looking at through a, through the prism of a camera trying to capture this moment as a keepsake for everybody who can't be a part of this. Definitely. How hard is it to you being in the moment Mm -hmm. but then also being in the moment of what you're capturing so you know that you're capturing cool shit for other people who to make it feel like they're there how hard is it to maintain that duality dude absolutely yeah that's a good question it's like well i like you're saying like in the i'm too old for the shit documentary like i went to germany to basically do a documentary about like this uh Basically, that movie was about this 80s band from Tampa that broke up in the 80s, and then by happenstance, like, there was a huge fan in Germany. Total, it's almost like, sorry to cut you off, it's almost like The Refuse when they broke up, and then Shape of Punk to Come became this big fucking thing, and they're right, like, yeah. we weren't a part of that at all. <laughs> Dude, it was the same. So, for people who don't know, it's it's basically like, uh, like I do a lot of work for Chris Jericho, like, the wrestler and, like, the musician sorry, and stuff. Who? Chris Jericho, he's a, he's a little, re he's a wrestler guy. Uh, uh, do you think no. he's going to have a good career? I He's... He's just, uh, he has a lot of, he has a promising career, I think, ahead of him. Cool. Like, I think he's got, got what it takes to, to go the distance. <laughs> but, uh, um, so I've done a, like a lot of just random work for him and stuff. And he, uh, put me in touch with this guy named Ed Aborn and he's like a good friend of Jericho. And, uh, Jericho called me and was like, Hey, I have this buddy named Ed who came up to me and said like, Hey, when I was in high school, I had this heavy metal band in Brandon, Florida, and we kind of did some stuff for a little bit, and we were about to blow up, and then, you know, it kind of fizzled out, as a lot of bands do. And uh, fast forward 30 years later, there was a guy in Germany who was just like this massive fan of, uh, of Siren, and he was just like, I want Siren to get together and play this big metal festival. And so, basically, like he had to like get the old band back together and they were like in their fifties. And so they're like older dudes trying to like be in this metal band and play their <laughs> dream gig in Germany. And so we go all the way to Germany and then it's like, we show up and people are losing their minds for this band. And it was just a surreal experience. So it, it was absolutely nuts, but just being like, like on one side, it was like uh, it was cool to experience. Cause I got to know the guys as we're like filming, going up to this moment and I remember there was like one moment we're driving up to the venue and there's a lot of stuff that goes through heads and like you think about like um, 
like, well, what if this is all just bullshit? We show up and there's no fans here and this is just, you know, because promoters can be weird. You know, we've dealt with weird promoters yep. in the day and you know how, you know how the thing could go. So we're like, I was, I was nervous. I was like, this could either be a very awesome, big redemptive show or it could be just a total like bummer and no one's there. But either way, like it, I knew it was going to be a, uh, uh, good. So we went, the, the day we rolled up, I just saw that like there was like a bunch of tents outside. There was cars. There was a huge line wrapped around the sidewalk, and I was like, "Oh, this is like the real deal." Well, like when you see something like that, are are you kind of like? Because I think I feel like the thing that would be interesting about getting, and I'm going to say for lack of a better term, pitched this idea of a documentary. Mm-hmm. Because, like, like you said, you don't know how the fuck it's going to end. Like, tentatively, the big, the big finale of the documentary is this big dream gig. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like there's so many stepping stones along the way where you're almost like, can the band even perform to the yeah, capability? Like, I mean, a, metal's hard. Like, if you don't is, keep yeah. those chops up, like, it's hard to play metal. That's the thing that's scary about going in to shoot, like, a documentary. Because you're just <laughs> like, what if it ends and nothing cool happens, you know? Like... Like I was, me, me and Chris were talking beforehand. And it's like it either has to be a huge show or just a complete shit show. If it's an okay show, then it won't be that good of a movie, you know. It's, but the day that we rolled up and we saw all the people there, and there was people like crying, like they were like, "I've waited my whole life to see Siren play live," and like people were like, "I had this shirt when I was a teenager, and I had to like lose weight in order to wear this to like to this show. Like it's been my life dream to see this band, and we're just like, this is crazy." And like they play their show, and people are just chanting "Siren" at the end. But it was just incredible. But just being in Germany because they take heavy metal so seriously, it it's like it felt like I went into a time machine and like showed up like on, it felt like I was in a seven dude. Yeah. It felt like I was on a movie set. Cause like everybody, <laughs> everybody was just like the long hair and the denim with the patches and stuff. And it, it's so hard. Just like after a while of getting all this B roll and stuff and like, there's just bands and Julian who went with me. He's like here today. Like I remember, uh, we were listening to some random German metal band and I was like, dude, I got to get in the pit. And I handle the camera and just go in and I start shoving dudes. And I was just like, I just need to be a part of it. It's so hard to be a bystander. And also it's just like, I want to experience like uh, just the German heavy metal scene and everything and, and just be a part of that. Because I think heavy metal is like a universal thing. Like Absolutely. the people like here in America are just lo- like, we can love it just as much as over there. You go over there. Like, even if I don't understand what's being said, like, it's just, a universal language and everybody just understands like the etiquette of being in the pit and all that and there's something almost beautiful about it like well i think it's weird because like we as american fans are very jaded i think based on having so much at our disposal yeah and very few times do we see a band that actually comes from somewhere else and then like we're the last market Mm -hmm. to kind of find out about this great band and i would say rammstein is like the last band like that really to like cross over here where you're like Actually, I would take that back. Gojira is probably the last newer band, mm-hmm. as far as like people being like, "Oh my god!" And like Gojira was a like on of every underground metal fan for the yeah. longest time. And I really think it was that Gojira Lamb of God uh, Metallica tour that mm-hmm. really brought Gojira to the quote unquote masses here in the states. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those where I think like we're so enamored with great bands that we don't have the adverse reaction that you're probably able to see when you go to Germany, where it's like. I haven't gotten to see this because it's fucking expensive for bands to go overseas and tour internationally. Yeah. And no one's like, I mean, I made the, I've been telling a lot of people this recently and I, I'm surprised people don't know this. Um, but I guess, you know, people don't give a fuck about the band, but 
Creed never toured internationally. They, I think they did like a couple of tours. Really? I didn't know they that. They ate yeah. shit. And then like they were so fucking huge here in the state, like arenas. Yeah. Like football stadiums and shit. Yeah, they were massive at one that point. That they were like, or more to the point, as Tremonti has kind of said, Scott basically and some of the other people in the, the behind the scenes people were like, fuck that, let's just hit this, make all our fucking money. Because it's not worth going somewhere else and eating shit and starting all over. When we're wow. this big over here. And that was one of the things I know when he started up Alter Bridge. He was like, we're going overseas. We're yeah. hitting all these fucking markets. Because you can't sustain or hold a career just doing Definitely. this one thing. And I find, like, especially just the European fans, especially when it comes to heavier music, they are just, like, all about it. That's a huge market for heavy music. So even, I feel like even if Creed went over there during, like, their heyday, like, they would still have done really good because... Just from the experience that I got, like... I'm sure there's people who are like, I've never gotten to see Creed. I would love to see Creed. Yeah, people would have showed up for it. It's it's it, it's insane, just the diehard fan base they have, especially when it comes to just he- a little bit heavier music. So Download Fest 2022, Creed headlining. That's Yeah, make it happen, everybody. I don't know who we got to talk to, but if you want to print money, that's what you got to do. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, I mean, something else I think is... is interesting about what you do now is you know you're in this really and i hate like putting myself into any of this at all because it's what you do is i think there's more skill in what you do versus what i do because like you need tangible i think uh talent on learning how to edit how to like cut out bullshit how to keep a narrative going how to make something compelling even with as you were saying tons of b footage how do you make b footage so basically like for those that don't know like because i'm actually in the process right now and i'm actually not going to cut it out this time because it's actually relevant to the person i'm talking to i'm in the process right now of actually doing a run the jewels uh beer documentary nice yeah. i know i've told you about it yeah and the thing is, is I hit up all the breweries and I wanted to tell the story basically of myself and a friend collecting all the beers because they did during the midst of a pandemic, a beer world tour. They had 12 breweries all across the world. They gave them a base recipe and then everyone made the no save point beer for uh, the song that was in Cyberpunk 2077. And I hit up a ton of breweries. A lot of people were really interested in doing it because I was like, hey, this is just a really interesting thing of talking about being able to merge the love of crap beer, the love of music, the love of mm-hmm. just community as a whole, and you know, kind of coming together during a pandemic when so many of us were separated because of a pandemic and not being mm-hmm. able to get together and experience community anymore. So I realized there's a story there for me, yeah, and I wanted to tell it, and I thought that I would be able to tell it in an interesting way because I'm part of those different communities. But the thing that's interesting about it is, is now I realize you have to come up with when you're interviewing the different people. So like for all the breweries, I was like, I'm going to ask two questions because I know I can't have each thing be a half hour because like then mm. I'm looking at a nine hour doc and no one gives a fuck about that. Yeah. So I have to do something that's quick to the point and, and gets the point across mm. of what we're doing. So then you have to kind of come up with a narrative. You have to come up with something. And then as you're kind of coming up with questions and coming up with who to get involved and what to ask and you're starting to put these things together you it's really crazy about how some of it will inform your creative decisions like i haven't i've only done one interview i haven't shot anything else i spent i've spent about probably five hours at the brewery that's in my hometown where we're going to shoot a lot of our tasting talking to the head brewer and the head owner of that brewery and how they got involved with everything and i was setting up like setting up shots trying to figure out lighting 
I was, and I was just like, oh my god, this is like this is so much fucking work, <laughs> like stupid shit that no one will ever fucking see or have any <laughs> clue that you're you've done, and it's just only a minuscule part of the part the creative process. Oh yeah. Let alone the countless emails, phone calls, and all this other shit, and conversations with the other people who are involved in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And it's fascinating my one foray into this already and what little bit I've done has just opened my eyes to like what you do or I'm like like and I know when I say you're cranking out documentaries mm. that's the perception because they're coming out so quickly what we aren't seeing is the th- two three four years that you have been collecting all of this yeah, material yeah. then sitting in front of the editing bay going like okay let me get to at least a first draft. First draft, two and a half hours. Fuck, need to cut that down. Dude, yeah. What the fuck now needs to come out where you're not sacrificing <laughs> yeah. content or story, but you're just editing it to make it as precise as possible. How has that been for you? Because I feel like I feel like you probably have had the skills to do that and you've refined them over time, but I feel like you definitely have, because you're balancing so many projects, I feel like you've had to get so much better at, at managing all of that. Definitely. I, th- I think the thing that started, like, back, like I said, when I was working with, like, DDP, like, one of the things that we did was we shot The Resurrection and Jake the Snake, and uh, they were just shooting constantly, just just insane amount of content. Like, basically, every day just kept the camera rolling, and just, it would be, like, Jake goes to the DMV, five hours of footage of him at the DMV, nothing usable from it you know what i mean it's just like like i went i remember dumping all the footage into premiere and like like there's like a 24 hour limit to how much footage you can put it so it's like i had a 24 hour timeline i was like all right well i gotta start cutting down the fat so you go through and just delete all the stuff you know for a fact you'll never use and then it's just like all right well now i have to put the stress footage so it's just like this never-ending thing and it takes months and almost like a few years to kind of go through everything and start shaping your story and uh, with Resurrection of Jacob Snake, and of course, like there was a lot of other people who worked on that. Steve Yu, Dylan Freimeyer, uh, my friend Neely, and a bunch of other different people. Like we, like it. But I, I was one of the people who was doing like the assistant edit, where it was like basically like sorting through all that footage and just finding like the core stuff. And uh, going through that, you kind of learn good methods and stuff. Like I'll make different timelines and editing where I'll be like. All right, I want to delete this clip. This clip I might use, so I want to put it over here just in case if I need to revisit it, just in case. And and you just kind of keep doing that, and it's just a very long process of just weeding through stuff and putting tabs or notes on things that you might come back to. But it's a really lengthy process, and I've done several documentaries. And, like, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake was the first one that I edited, and uh, Steve Yu directed that from, like, DDP Yoga and everything and Comeback Studios. And, and then I went on to kind of do my own thing, and I started doing Girl Gang, which is a documentary series with the Cherry Bombs, and then I did I'm Too Old for This Shit. Um, I did Fozzie Across America and a bunch of other just random documentaries. And, and I did Relentless, which is a documentary about uh, the history of DDP Yoga and, and Diamond Dallas Page's post-wrestling career. And that was like a lot because that was like 10 years of footage. And if you know DDP, he's like the guy who wants everything filmed constantly all the time. Even back in the day, he was used to be the guy that put his like VHS camera on a tripod and filmed all of his matches. Like he was just that dude. He was like ahead of his time. And so I just have like an ass ton of footage to go through in order to make this doc. And I started in like the end of 2016 and it literally just came out like I think the last week of 2020 or whatever. So it like 
like Obama was president when I first started <laughs> when I first started editing this thing, and it just came out. So it's it's you've gone it's, through technically three presidents. At yeah, this point. I guess so. And it was just it was wild, but I'm really proud of that. And that and the relentless documentary. Like if you go to ddpoga like dot com or their Facebook page or DDP's page on Facebook, you'll find it. It's it's out there for free. We posted because we wanted people to to see what like DDP yoga is about and me being there for like nine years, I've witnessed the craziest things and just the transformations mentally and physically that people have done. Like I know DDP yoga is like this big thing that's hyped up a lot, but I got to experience it firsthand. And, and I could tell you that Dallas definitely like walks his talk and like it. And it's just a great, like uh like program, like even beyond like a fitness aspect, it's just so rad. And I was very thankful because it'd be like dudes I'd walk in, they'd be like, yeah, I've been doing the program for a little bit. You know, I lost like 30 pounds and then they disappear for a year and then you see them like they come back in for a visit and they're like, yeah, I dropped 200 pounds. And now I'm like, and you're just like, oh my God, like just ridiculous, like things like you would, you would see these once in a lifetime like transformations almost like on a weekly basis almost and it's just it's hard not to be like moved and inspired by that and so you feel like it's like wow like if you really set your mind to it like you can literally do whatever you want to do because i've seen it so many times through the things that dallas is like instilled in people man it's yeah working at ddp yoga man that was just like the coolest shit ever because i got to see some amazing stuff all that say, watch Relentless. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Two things on that, because I was just actually watching the episode of uh, Fuck That's Delicious, the, the end of the la- third season, where he's actually working out with DDP in, mm. I think, New York somewhere. Were you around when that was being filmed at all? Uh, who was it? Like uh... Action Bronson for the Fuck That's Delicious on Vice? Uh-uh, I don't think so. No? Okay. No. Weird. I, I was just literally, before we came here, I was because uh, I'm finishing that up before I start watching the awesome. self-produced uh, season that he's been putting out on like, Action Bronson on uh, YouTube. And it looks like it's a two-part season finale, basically, because it was on Vice, and it's about him getting healthy, which, if you've been following Action Bronson, he's lost a shit, like, over 130 mm-hmm. pounds at this point in the last, like, year or so. Excuse me, but it starts off with him going seemingly up about four flights of steps to this, uh, like, somewhere in New York, like, mm. thing, and it's DDP. And, and like, nice. him, and, uh, him and one of his buddies is, like, starting DDP yoga. And it was just, like, one of those things. I was like, I wonder if Nathan was there. And I was thinking about it today because, like, we're coming over here. Uh, and for those that are listening to this, the background noise you have heard, uh, we finished wrapping an episode with my friend Alfonso for Good Company. Um, so that's the background noise you hear. Mm. Uh, we were in Scott's basement uh, here in Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia. Actually, it's not Atlanta, Georgia. It's, like, Oakwood, Cal- or Georgia. But uh, yeah. regardless. Um, I mean, I think that's even something interesting, too, probably, that you're probably pulling from is, like, you know, DDP, for those that – maybe aren't wrestling fans, DDP got a very late start Yeah, in his career. Like, he was a, basically a bar bouncer, and... Yeah, he... Well, not not that. He had a pretty successful career, like, in the bar business right. and everything, and that's kind of how he broke into wrestling, because wrestlers would kind of come to his bar, and they'd hang out, and he... He was like doing some like manage like he was like a manager for a little bit and he tried wrestling a little early just didn't work out for him so right. he didn't even give it a real go until like he was thirty five and thirty five that's like the year where people are starting to like you know wrap up you know yep. <laughs> yeah yep. but he was like nah dude this is like I'm going Start. for it now yeah. yeah and yeah and he says like his career didn't take off until he was like forty years old and when he was forty he was like heavyweight champion so it. And of course, like, you can't have that being 35 years old without just absolutely busting your ass. And he's like, he's someone that busts his ass. So it's, it's, he's definitely been an influence of like 
okay, I think a lot of things that separate us from what we want is just busting your ass and putting in the work. And he's someone that shows, at least for me, and a good example in my life of like, that guy absolutely busted his ass to get what he has and he earned it and he got it. And so I'm like, man, I could do that if I could just, you know, set my mind to whatever it is I want to do. I think it's very like possible. So just a very inspirational dude altogether. I mean, I think that's kind of an interesting topic right there. I mean, you have been able to, I don't even know the right word to use where it doesn't sound condescending or shitty in some way, where it's like you finagled your way, you've, you, I'll say you've earned your way uh, into working with a lot of these people, and obviously those that know you, I mean, maybe on my show, they don't know you, and they may not know what you've done, and hopefully this show will kind of allow people to go back and see what you've done, or start following you and see yeah, what you yeah. do. But the thing for me that I have always found interesting is, you know, I'm someone who's who gravitates toward people who fucking manifest things in spite of all the things that people will tell you, oh, you can't do this because you, you don't have this experience, you don't have these things, whatever mm -hmm. the fuck. Like, my buddy Alfonso is a great example. As you heard and as you will hear on eventually, you know, he was in a band for 15 fucking years. Mm -hmm. And some of the success stories that he had, like one of my favorite ones that I'll share with you because it's a common band for you and I, I remember that Warp Tour he was talking about where they had won and got to play like a handful of dates on the Warp Tour. Every time I die comes around, plays my hometown. They invited those guys out because they became friends with them. And oh, Keith nice. goes, I want to bring out these guys in no life. They're fucking local to you guys here in Michigan. You need to support your local fucking bands because this band is the real fucking deal. We see a lot of shit bands. That's awesome. And to me, like, I remember seeing that and I was like, like, I got like kind of choked up because I'm like, oh my God, one of my favorite bands is talking and giving the platform to one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. Like, how fucking cool is that? That rules. Now, adversely... And they're like the band, so getting that exactly. kind of like... They, like to, to me, like there is no greater compliment than being complimented by people in in that you are for a fan sure. of. Especially like in Every Time I Die. Who are like, fucking road dogs and earn yeah. everything that they get. Yeah. And so for me, like the thing that I've always taken away from something like that is like even when you reach a certain level of success, what what some would view from the outside is a certain level of success, that you're not satisfied with that. You know that you still have to put in the work and you still have to show up and perform every mm -hmm. single day and every single night. You have been fortunate enough between a Chris Jericho who has maintained one of the highest level runs in professional wrestling I've ever seen. Starting out in WCW as a cruiserweight, which was a dirty fucking word back in the day. Yeah. And elevating the cruiserweight champ like cruiserweight division with like Hubitude and like Lepark well not Leparka because he got kind of fat, but <laughs> <laughs> but like you know like hey, the man, cruiserweight division. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like one of those things like to see what Jericho did and then leave like, where he could have taken the easy way out and stayed in WCW and just made fucking money on a sinking ship, but he chose to go somewhere else. He was ostracized mm -hmm. because he worked for the other company and then built his name up again, stayed relevant, then went into music, built his name up again. Like, you're working hand-in-hand -hand with Chris, basically, at this point, with a lot of different stuff mm -hmm. between working on, you know, arguably one of their most, the first biggest chart-topping single in video in Judas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you had a hand in that. You got to kind of see... The, the work that kind of went into that and kind of the success that came along with it. Working with DDP for nine fucking years and seeing the grind to, like, the Shark Tank appearance where everyone's like, oh, I just don't see it. And then, like, in spite of that door being slammed, in his, not slammed, but, like, that door being closed, he still persevered. He still went on. He still fucking yeah. built this thing up from the ground up. 
Corey Taylor now. Like now you're working with, you know, Alicia from Cherry Bombs. You're working with Corey Taylor. Like you're doing all these things and you're seeing people who I think are constantly not satisfied with just resting on their laurels, but wanting to do and succeed Mm. in whatever they want to do. Yeah. What is that like to just constantly see that with people you're working with firsthand? And what is that, what does that do for you to inspire you to do whatever? Like what are some goals that maybe now you have because you're working with these people? I, I think like my favorite thing, and this is something that is shared between both like Alicia, Jericho, and DDP. It's that they just don't give a fuck about what people tell them. It's just like this is my goal, and I'm going to relentlessly chase this, and I will get it. I there's so many naysayers, and anytime that you want to do something that like, and you start getting finding success in it, people start being shitty to you because they like a lot of times people get so angry if you start accomplishing what you set out to do, and it's really weird, and I've never understood that, but. Like, I've seen Jericho, like, even when people are just like, this is dumb, this is whatever, Jericho sticks to it, gets it over, and people will eventually come around and be like, you know what, this is actually pretty rad. And so, people who can just have that confidence and just just go for it, it's pretty, pretty wild. I'm so. showing Nathan right now, I tweeted out one day, a couple years ago, and so he's reading my tweet. And I'll read the tweet here in a minute after he reads it. But just so he has a frame of like what I'm actually referencing. So I tweeted out something, and that's I was true. I do think that's true because I I think I had this talk with Alicia from like Cherry Bombs. Let like, me cut you off real quick, yes. just so people know who are listening. So um, I had done an episode of the podcast, and basically I had a bunch of people listen to it because the artist shared it, and they were really proud of our conversation. And I was like, really like, holy shit, like this is really fucking awesome. And I was probably about a year and a half into the, doing the podcast. So still pretty new, and this is a bigger guest. And it was one of those things where, if you want to go grab another one, you totally can. So I can. I know. I'm like I'll sipping I'll on like an empty. Yeah. Here, you talk while I'll I go get another uh, beer. Right. Um, so basically, I the the guest shared the episode, and I was really proud of it. And I was like, oh my god, like this is really cool that they're sharing it, and they're really excited about it. And it turned into a thing where I had a lot of people who were essentially shitting on me. And the opportunity and the uh, the episode, like being like, oh, I I, I could have done better. I could have done this. I would have done whatever the fuck. And I was like, kind of getting really bummed because it was the first time I'd really gotten some big exposure from something I'd done. And the person being like, I was really proud of this conversation I did. And this person fucking got what I was trying to do as an artist. And like, here, like, listen to it. And then people are shitting on on me. And I'm like, fuck, man, this sucks. Like. It's, like, I don't have thick skin. I don't have, have people tell me, like, give me feedback and shit. So, like, the first time I'm doing something and I'm proud of it and then people are ripping on me, basically. And I was like, this sucks. And I remember I was listening to Ice-T's podcast and he was talking about how, like, sometimes you just got to block the haters out because haters, haters don't hate on people who aren't successful. So yeah. then I tweeted out, basically, and I'll read the, the, the tweet was, yesterday I let something a few haters said to me get to me. Tried to learn from the criticisms, but recalled an episode of Ice-T's podcast where he talks about how haters only come out when you're doing something they wish they could do. Paraphrasing, but I just have to keep on my grind. Ice-T then saw that and then quote-tweeted it and said, just remember, haters hate up. Nobody talks shit about someone below them. And when I saw that, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, Ice-T fucking, like, basically replied to me. Yeah. And then bestowed some more daily wisdom on me. Like, holy shit, like, that's some fucking game right there that he just gave me. And everybody, anybody who would, like, and to see, like, people like and retweet that thing. Like, my Twitter mentions were going crazy that day. And I was just like, this is so fucking crazy. But ever since then, I've really tried to take that piece of advice 
to heart because like you're saying with Jericho, like you're saying with DDP, like you're saying with Alicia, so many people will talk shit because they don't have the fucking fortitude to fucking do something on their own. It's easy to talk shit behind a keyboard. It's hard to do something and put yourself out there. Dude, absolutely. And to me, like yeah. seeing what you do constantly in all the different facets and mediums, like you are someone that like after I met you and I knew of you, I knew of you before I came here and like fun story. My wife was like, you didn't talk to Scott a whole lot after your interview. And I was like, no, I wanted to talk to Nate. I wanted to talk to his crew because like they were the more interesting people. Like nothing against Scott, but like you guys are more interesting to me because like you're the people that no one knows about. Yeah, but you're the thing. Man. You're yeah. the people that make the show happen, and sure. I think that that's interesting. Yeah. And so knowing what I knew about you, I was like, that's the kind of person I want to talk to. That's the kind of person I want to like get in like my collection of friends and people that I can bullshit with because mm-hmm. I want to be able to be motivated by people. I want to like see your success because then I'll be like, fuck yeah, I want to do something like that. Fuck it, let's go. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Thank you. It's. With the whole like thing you were saying about Ice T, like I like I was saying, I had like a conversation with Alicia from like Cherry Bombs, and she was just saying like everybody that's gonna boo you is always just like people that are sitting on the sidelines, and I've learned that people who sit on the sidelines never score touchdowns. So it's just like <laughs> why like why why would I listen to those people because they're just bitching about stuff they never had the balls to do. So it's just like like I don't care about what they think. Like I'm for me of like I'm. I'm on this earth one time. I have one life. I have only so many laps around the sun. I might as well just do what it is that I love. And I feel like if you love something and if it's really important to you, you'll invest time, money, and you're, you should be willing to be made fun of and look like an idiot for doing it. Right. And for me, it's just like, I'm going to do it. And there's going to be times where I'm going to like come up short. And I'm going to screw up. I'm going to fail. I'm not going to, I'm going to miss my mark and people are going to mock me or whatever, but it's, you know, it's part of it, but I'm just going to keep going because I, I refuse to have some job that I hate and I refuse to sit there and just be miserable and like doing something I don't want to do because 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 why because some person talks down to me because they're going to complain about it on Twitter I don't give a shit like I want to live this life because it's so precious and so valuable and I've been so fortunate lucky and like privileged to be able to do some of the stuff that I've gotten to do in filmmaking and and being in the world of wrestling and stuff and it's worked out for me and I'm going to keep doing it until the day I drop dead so we'll see how it goes so you can't listen to people who want to discourage or hate you you just got to keep going one of the kind of uh kind of slowly and wrapping up one of the last kind of questions I have like given the successes of what you've done and I and I feel like you really have you've not had to do bullshit like you've not had to like compromise who you are as as a creative to to do things what do you still what still motivates you and what drives you like what do you still have left to accomplish like what do you want to accomplish in either film wrestling whatever like what what motivates you every day to keep going like what are you excited about moving forward man it's it's crazy that's a good question because like when i was a kid my ultimate goal was like i want to be able to pay my bills and live comfortably as a filmmaker and now i do that now it's like i'm doing music videos i'm working in wrestling and that's like just bonus it's just so awesome so for me i just want to just work with more bands who I really dig and like uh, like bands I grew up loving and stuff like I want to do more music videos more documentaries and and tell stories like about things that like I'm a part of or I've seen that I feel like deserve to get their you know stories told so I want to do documentary more documentaries for that way and like I want to just do more stuff in pro wrestling I did like working with like 
you know, I worked in AEW for like a little bit, helping with video packages and stuff like that, and just backstage stuff. And and I just want to work more in wrestling. And I'm actually in wrestling school myself because I want to become a wrestler. And and I want to do like hardcore wrestling and deathmatch wrestling and bring storytelling to that. And that's kind of like that shit's so scary. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like and it's, I mean, like that David Arquette like fuck up. Yeah. It's nuts. They're just so, it's like I have this morbid curiosity where I just want to like like I want to know what it's like to be thrown in barbed wire and it's like something that's I it's been something I've been curious about since I was a kid. And I'm only getting older and I'm like 29 now. I was like, well, I better just go for it and just see what happens. Like I like I have so many friends in wrestling that I was like, okay, I feel like I could if I play my cards right, I can do something with it. Right. And I'm like, I have nothing else to lose, man. I just I have one body and one life, so I'm just going to do all the things that I want to do and fuck what everyone says. What's your uh <laughs> What's your gimmick name? <laughs> Dude, I haven't thought of one yet. No? No, I like part of me just thinking I just should use my shoot name and just be Nathan Maury or whatever. I have a few ideas like not kind punk, not maybe not kind punk. I thought about you don't think that would, I think that would be kind an interesting punk dichotomy. Be cool. I thought about doing like being Shania Payne or something like that. You know, like I'm just a big Shania Mark. I don't know, probably oh, not that. Man. But you I know, can, the crossover merch alone would be fucking. Great. It'd be great. People would buy the shirt. You know, <laughs> so oh, maybe I can not totally that. Totally see your your gimmick of being like people doing shit and you're like that don't impress me. That don't impress me much. That's just that's, my, that's just my line at the end of yeah. a promo. Oh. Whatever, that don't impress me much. <laughs> so that's, you're the Undertaker. That don't impress me much. Yeah. That's like today we went to uh, we were in Little Five Points and we were at a uh, Rago Rama, which is basically a uh, a really sweet like secondhand store. I found a Mr. Kennedy shirt. Did you really? Nice. I did. It was like 16 bucks, and I was like, but it was like a double XL, and I was like, or no, it's not. It was a medium, and I was like, can't fit that. But I thought about buying it just for the shits and giggles of like, yeah, here's a weird Mr. Kennedy shirt. R.I.P. Like, he died, right? I don't think so. I think he's still alive, right? No, I'm sorry. I watched a documentary on Crash Holly. That's why that's in okay. my head. Because Crash and Mr. I was about Kennedy to say, that's sort, of looked the same. <laughs> sort of looked the same back in the day. Um, so, I guess the last question. You do a story on your life. What do you want people to take away? When, like, if the when the credits roll, what is what is the feeling you want people to take away from the story, the documentary of the story of your life? Whoa, that's a that's a really deep question, man. I think for me, it's just I want to be kind of like when I'm dead and gone, I want to be known as the guy who he went for it. He chased the dreams that he wanted to do, and he didn't compromise who he was, and he didn't sacrifice his integrity, and he made it based upon what he believed was right. And like for me, I. Like, I just want to be able to, when, like, I'm trying to figure out how to word it right, but I feel like there's two kinds of people in life. There's the oh wells and the what ifs. I'd rather be a oh well guy. I'd rather try something and just fall on my face hard and then wonder what if, and then when I'm old, an old man sitting um, on my couch doing crossword puzzles waiting for death, like, I don't want to sit there and wonder about the things I could have done. I want to be able to say, you know what, I did everything that in life that I wanted to do. And that's what I want to like leave behind. Just being a man that that guy did everything he wanted to do in life. He lived a full life, and he inspired others to do the same. And that's kind of the what I want out of life personally. So, for everyone that wants to continue following you on your life's journey, where can everyone find you online or whatever you would like to plug? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you can follow me. Like I'm at Nathan Mowry, N A T H A N M O W E R Y, on pretty much everything, and also Kind Punk Film, which is my company. Uh, you can just follow that kindpunk.com and 
You know, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all that nonsense. Sometimes I post on TikTok, you know, if you get crazy. So, uh, you know, all that good stuff. So, yeah, come say hi. Slide into my DMs. I'm a friendly guy, I like to think. So, Looking forward to uh, seeing you if you tour at some point, because it seems like you've been touring a little bit and maybe making your way out my way. Yeah, Instead of me coming down here every single fucking time. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for taking this time. Absolutely, brother. So that was my conversation with Nathan Mowry, again, of Kind Punk Film. Huge thanks to Nathan. Uh, the dude is such an inspiration uh, to you, me just being a creative person. Uh, to see what he's done, to see how he's not compromised himself uh, or his artistic vision to do interesting films uh, and storytelling and so forth um, is really interesting. And just his tireless work ethic um, is something that's very admirable. Um, That was actually why we haven't been able to do this conversation in almost a year is because every time there's like a small glimpse of like time, it's like, hey, I'm going to be doing AEW this day, but I'm free at this time. Ah, fuck, that doesn't work for me. What about this day? Well, then I'm going and I'm shooting a music video with Islander or I'm going to go, I have a good company to film or I have these things and it was just like fuck man like you have so much (laughs) on your plate at all times like it's it's kind of maddening um to just see like dude's work ethic um but it's inspiring like i said all the same there is a plethora of things uh if you were remotely interested in this conversation that nathan has been a part of that you should go check out i would say the easiest thing to do is go to kindpunk.com and there's you know, a sizzle reel of everything that they've done over the last, you know, year or so. Um, if you go to their YouTube channel, you'll see literally every music video, uh, that kind punk has done everything from Emery to Islander to Fozzie videos, so much stuff, all the good company stuff. Uh, there's also the documentaries, the relentless, uh, documentary that he did with DDP, uh, the traveling documentary he did for Fozzie where they played three shows in three different time zones in one day. And I mean, there's just, there's so much that he's doing um, and constantly doing uh, the I'm too old for this shit documentary that just came out. Like wherever you can find any of those things, please go watch them, support him, uh, support kind punk films. Few people that I've gotten to know really well in my time of going over to Scott's house and, and kind of just forging these friendships. Um, so one is again, thank Nathan for taking the time, Scott for the hospitality uh, and allowing me to do an interview literally where he does his interviews. Um, it was kind of intimidating to, to follow uh, Scott basically in his, in his home court basically. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And the trip overall to Atlanta was a lot of fun. Uh, the very next day after we got done doing this chat, Alfonso and I went to game four of the Atlanta Hawks, uh, New York Knicks uh, series. The Hawks ended up winning It was a lot of fun. I had my first Waffle House experience as well on our way back uh, to Michigan from Atlanta. We drove. uh, So it's about a 12 hour drive. And it was uh, it was a real fun trip. And I'm really glad I got to do it. I might be doing it again um, soon. Um, You know, my penchant for Atlanta. I love it. Uh, Friend of the podcast. Do we help us is apparently going down there uh, very soon to have his episode of Good Company uh, filmed. And I kind of want to maybe do something with that. Um, cause some, the thing that's interesting about some of these interviews, you know, yes, I have phone numbers and I text with some of these people and, and all that, but sometimes like I've never met some of these people, like, you know, I've never met Dewey, but I've been in daily contact with him for the last, I'd say four or five months, never met him. Um, so it seems like one of those examples where it just would be cool to, to have a shared experience of meeting somebody with another set of friends and doing kind of the thing of how we all know each other. Um, 
So I'm possibly going to do that. But worst case, I might go back for my birthday in September. So I'm sure you'll hear all about that at some point. Without further ado, let's start wrapping this episode up. If you would like to keep up with Kind Punk, it's simple, Kind Punk on Facebook. You're not going to see it by Kind Punk, but it should be the only thing that comes up. A big, giant picture of Corey Taylor wearing the Kind Punk t-shirt is uh, the backdrop. Uh, Instagram at Kind Punk Film, Twitter at Kind Punk Film, and again, just go to kindpunk.com. And if you'd like to keep up with Nathan Mowry, it's Instagram and Twitter at Nathan Mowry. Uh, he's a good brother, does a lot of great stuff. Uh, he puts a lot of people over uh, as we're using all these wrestling terms to wrap up the uh, the go-home uh, <laughs> part of this show. <laughs> and... Uh, for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, if you would like to keep up with us, it's simple enough. BruceBeatPod.com is a landing page for everything you need to know about this show. And our sponsors who continue to support us are greatly appreciated. If you can support them, do so. Head on over to Rockabilia.com. Use our code BREW. Take 10% off your total purchase order. On Point Palmade. Keep your beard and hair looking on point. Use our code BSB15. Take 15% off your total purchase order. And last but certainly not least is the Bean Bastard. Go to thebeanbastard.com, pick up some delicious coffee, and if you're in the Buffalo, New York area, as you heard in the intro ad, go support those guys and gals. Uh, they have a brick and mortar, and it's all about supporting you know your local businesses. So please do so if you, if you can. And for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, I am John, and I'll talk to you next week, where our guest is Chris Hornbrook of The Mighty Poison the Well. We'll see you then.